This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radiolab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Burkhard Bilger's writing for The New Yorker has covered a wide, wide landscape from rodeos to cave exploration, from Mars to Southern food, music, neuroscience, almost everything. On Burke's long list of stories, every page contains a kind of universe. But over the last few years, nearly a decade, Burke has been researching a subject much closer to home. He's been looking at the history of his own family. He grew up in Oklahoma, the child of German immigrants, and his new book is about their generation, and it's called Fatherland a memoir of war, conscience, and family secrets. Well, my parents are both what you call Kriegskinder, as you say. So they were born in 1935. What does that mean? Kriegskinder means children of war. Mm -hmm. And um, that means that they're in an interesting spot psychologically. They were, you know, very young children during the war. um, And they carry, I think, the guilt of the war within them. And at the same time, they aren't responsible for anything. So this is kind of you're in between two There's no question of agency. There's no question of agency. Um, And so it was something they talked about, but they didn't really go into detail about. My my grandfather was in the Nazi party, and my mother mother would acknowledge that, but we would never really go into any detail about it. Burke, I have to tell you that even now, it's a startling thing. I remember when we were editing this piece and the pictures started appearing, there was a picture of your grandfather um, in the obvious uniform. And it was startling to, for me to put together this guy who I've worked with now for years and um, I have great affection for and enormous regard for as a writer. And then there's his grandfather in a Nazi uniform. Tell me a little bit about him and how you think about him and how I should think about him. My grandfather was uh, a school teacher in Aulfing, a little village in Germany, and he was in his late 30s um, when the war started, and he was a, f- you know, a fervent Nazi party member. And at a certain point, he was sent to a village in Alsace called Baltenheim as part of the, the German campaign to re-educate these young French students and turn them into good Germans now that they were part of the German Reich. But the fact that he was a Nazi didn't really come into our family conversations until I was late in my teen years. And my mother always talked about it as he had been sent there, but she never talked about what he did. Um, And 
I think she herself, even though she'd written her dissertation on the German occupation in France, she never looked into that history. And so it was kind of this blank Because it was unbearable for her? I don't know if it was unbearable. I think she was scared to find to, to, about what she would find out. She was scared to, to look into that hole. Um, and then finally, late in the day after she'd handed in her dissertation, she went there and she discovered actually that there was more to the story, that he had been a fervent Nazi party member, but then he had eventually collaborated with the head of the resistance in the village. And there'd been a trial or, or, the, or an investigation for a trial and eventually had been exonerated and the villagers had kind of come forward to defend him. So it suddenly became a much more complicated story. Um, and I went, I think, from having this guilty embarrassment in my family history to having something that intrigued me and confused me. Like, how could a person be both those things? At what point did this taboo start breaking up in Germany and he started talking about the war uh, in traumatic terms? When did, when did Germans feel that this was even possible? It's only been in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, I mean, people often talk about how um, it, it really began with the work of Sabine Bode, who did a lot of interviews with, with Kriegskinder and has written three books of oral history about them. She's a historian or psychologist? She's a journalist by trade and um, married to a psychiatrist, and she put these books together, and they kind of broke open the, um, broke open the box. And uh, I asked her how she got onto this, this big subject and what, what drove her to it. It started more than 20 years ago in the Balkan War. You know, TV showed the children suffering. And one day, as I'm a journalist, I asked myself, so what about the German war children? Must be, they're now getting pretty old or not. Or why I never heard about them? Why did I never hear how they coped with that fate? You know, what, what, what kind of silence is that? And at the beginning, I thought, well, that's an interesting story for for me. I worked at the radio station at that time for the audience, and uh, nobody was interested. That's the journalist Sabina Baudet talking with our staff writer, Burkhard Bilger. We'll continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I'm Ross Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. 
At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Was there a fear? I mean, I know that there's uh, there's a, re- a resistance to talking about German trauma and German suffering during the war because, of course, the Germans inflicted so much suffering on the rest of the world during the war. Is that why the, why the radio station wasn't interested back then, do you think? Yes. And at that time, uh, all the editors in the radio stations or in the newspapers or the people in charge, they, were, they belonged to that age group, you know. So I had to wait for a change of generation that uh, people said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Why don't you make a piece for me? That's about my parents. Right, right. So what was your first experience going out and trying to collect stories from, from Kriegskinder, asking them about their experience during the war and so forth? Well, there was one thing, the way they spoke. It was either, oh, it was a, a funny time, we had a lot of good times, and it was a lot of adventure, and they told all those stories. Actually, some stories were really, were really funny, I must say. Or it was completely uh, without emotion, you know, like somebody is reading something in a telephone book. The mum- numbness remained for many of them until they they got old. Right, right. I want to ask you a little bit about your own background. I mean, you had done some of your own research into your family history and, and war history as well, right? Was that one of the things that led you into this field? No, I'd, I'd, I had it already done when I did it. Mm, mm. And it helped me because uh, I had my personal peace with my family story. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? I, what, how did you start your family research and what did you know when you started? Uh, well, I knew my father was a Nazi. I knew my mother was a Nazi. Everybody knew because they talked like Nazis almost until they died. There were these people who said, well... The way I talk about that time, everybody thinks like that, but they just don't dare to say that anymore. My father felt like a hero in a way that he was so courageous to say what he thought. And, um, yeah, nobody actually, nobody stopped him as far as I remember as a, as a teenager. It was very embarrassing for, for me, yes. I mean, what kind of things did he say when you say he, he, the way he spoke? What kind of things would he say that were classic old Nazi um Thought. Yeah, well, what they all said, it wasn't all bad. You know what Hitler did? He should have uh, um, stopped earlier, something like that. He wasn't quite sure if the Holocaust happened or not, at least not to that extent, not with these millions he just couldn't believe. And so then you you thought you wanted to look into his own history as during the war or, or his father's history? Or how did you, what did you then research after that? Oh, uh, well... Since it wasn't much they told us, and after a while, uh, 
But I was only able to do that uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, because only then we had access to the archives we needed. Do you mind talking about what you found, what, what, what the background history was that you discovered? Uh, well, he and my grandfather betrayed a, uh, a Jewish relative. He was um, the husband of the wife, uh, sorry, he was the husband of the sister of my grandfather. Hmm. He tried to hide as a Jew, and my father and my grandfather together helped the Gestapo to find him. He was murdered in Auschwitz. Right. So what was it like to discover that? Could you describe the moment when you found that evidence in the archives, what it, how that felt? I tell you, it was a relief because I thought, oh, that, something like that, in in way of that he was not a mass murderer. So what it did, it did confirm me in what I always suspected and what 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 I carried with me and said, well, listen, yeah, yeah, okay, that's the way it is. That was him, and uh, all the all the relatives lied to me. That was really not nice. That was not nice to think of that over. Uh, that he uh, kept silent and my mother's, well, that is easily to understood, but all the relatives did the same. So but so you had always suspected that he had done a war crime, but you'd, you'd fear, you'd been afraid that it would be much something even, even more terrible than what he did. Yeah, yeah. My generation, born after the war or in the end of the war or in the 50s, we all thought that was our main fear. Uh, uh, my God, uh, was my father a mass murderer? Um, it's. I mean, when you say it's a relief, it's interesting. I, I know. Um, I mean, when I was looking, researching my own grandfather's history, um, which is ambivalent. I mean, there's evidence that he did uh, almost courageous things during the war, and and then obviously, as a he was a Nazi party member and was in occupied France, he must have also uh, countenanced. Uh, terrible things or allowed things to go by if, if not participated in them. I don't know. You know, we all come from these families. Oh, uh, you, why do you always put questions? Um, you don't know anything. Keep quiet. Keep silent. Da, 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 da. Yes. But your insight <laughs> still, have, still has these questions. And then after a while you say, oh, I was right. That's a very good feeling. I was right. Yes. You and your, your your brothers are very slightly apart. I mean, they were alive during the war. You were not. Could you talk a little bit about that? What was the difference between being a Kriegskind to being a Nachkriegskind, as, as you would be called? I guess the main thing is when they were very small children, when they were just born in the first one, two, three years, they had parents and they had an environment of adults which felt stressed all the time, you know. Whereas me, uh, I belong to the generations with the lowest rate of newborn. I must say, when I <laughs> my early remembers is, you know, I walk out the house and I, I may be three years old or two and a half, and every adult which meets me stops, says hello, how are you, Sabina? Nice to meet you. They were just so happy to have uh, see children. Yes, I, I was. Uh, I was carrying the hope, you know, for a better life. You know, it's funny. That's very much my first memories. Uh, strong memories are being five years old. We we moved to Germany to Karlsruhe when I was five in 1969, and my my mother would take me on her shopping rounds every day, and 
every store we went to, the shopkeepers were so kind and they would give me a candy, a gummy bear, or they would give me a, a piece of, of, of German sausage or, they would, you know, there was, and it was that same, there, there did seem to be this hunger for youth and innocence and children in Germany, even, 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 even later. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can you tell me a couple of stories from people that really stuck out for you um, that people told you about the kind of trauma they experienced or stories that might have things that happened to them that might have traumatized them during the war? The strongest one I had, and it's about a woman, and she practically the whole war she was led in, she was sitting in the air raid center. She was uh, that was a harbor city, and it was bombed from the beginning to the end of the war. I mean, it was incredible what she said that one day she missed the the shelter because she wasn't uh, wasn't fast enough to, uh, running to school, and then the uh, alarm came and she wasn't fast enough, and the doors of the bunker was closed, and then she was there alone, <laughs> completely wow. alone. You can't believe it. And uh, hmm. in that in that uh, bombing, and she said afterward, I never told anybody. Because I was scared they would tell me, why didn't you hurry up? And at the same time, her mother was a person, she wanted her to be a happy child. And she said sometimes, I, why can't you be happy, you know? And this mm. woman had had um, had a handicap, developed a handicap, and only very late, I think she was more than 70, she realized that that came from from her war childhood. She was so forgettable. She was so extremely forgettable. She forgot everything, good things, bad things. It was her short-term memory that she, like her, her, her recent memory? And long-term, both. And then she, uh, she started uh, to reconstruct her childhood. And it was quite a process. And what happened, the long-term memory got better and the short-term memory got better. And she was enjoying her age then because she said, you know, I love learning. And it was always hard for me to learn because I, had, I couldn't keep things in mind so well. And now <laughs> I'm learning all the time. I mean, what do you think? I mean, there's certainly people who will say, why should we care? Uh, about German suffering in the war, you know. Again, there was so much terrible things to be were done by Germans. Uh, why should we care about the, the suffering of the Kriegskinder? What do you What do you say to them? What, what do you feel about that? I say sorry. It is not only in Germany. I think we we find the same stories in Poland and in Russia. We find them in Cambodia. We find them in in uh, in South America. That is an universal issue. Of course, it varies from the history, from what happened, what kind of atrocities, how many victims, how many perpetrators. Okay, but parents cannot bear the, the thought that they were not able to protect their children. They are happy when children never mention that again. You know, then they think everything is fine. We have a strong resilience Everybody of us has, I guess, or most of us have. But when you don't know that you are traumatized, then it is hard to overcome. Right, right. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about Familienaufstellung, this uh, this <laughs> this type of group therapy. I mean, it's I was fascinated to discover how popular this type of group therapy is in Germany, and it seems to be a. I mean, I'll quickly describe it. It's 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 a type of group therapy that people often use to explore their family history. And what you do is you you spend a day or two in a room with ten other strangers, and each of you takes turns talking to the therapist for a while and talking about what you're feeling, what your problems are, and and a, and a bit about your family history. And then the patient chooses strangers from the room to represent family members from their history. And those strangers then proceed to kind of almost channel the spirits of those people they've been asked to represent. They have dialogues, they, they suddenly have memories of things they did during the war, and often new information arises that, that they'll say, oh, I can sense that that I was, uh, you know, I was I was molested by Russian soldiers during the war. They might say, or these new things come up, and and it's become very popular in Germany. And it seems like a, a way in which people often explore the past when they can't discover the things they wanted to discover in the archives, or that or their parents didn't tell them what happened. I don't know if it is a therapy. You know, it may be an uh, initiation uh, to start. Yes. Uh, my my mother, for instance, had a brother, and he died in the war. The last day, she hardly ever talked about him, and it was her dearest brother. That kind of thing is that I sometimes call the ghost of 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 the death. Yes, uh, it is not something where you can which you can solve. You know, with that, it can help mm. you to start to get interested in your in your family story. I don't believe in healing by that. I believe in healing, I think, is a long process. I mean, war doesn't end when the weapons are silent, but war does, in fact, narrow relationships, you know. That is why so many people of your age group are visiting uh, Familienausstellung. And some of them uh, wish that this is, you know, you get out and you are free. <laughs> that doesn't work. Right. But it starts, as, uh, I don't know if it's the one you attended, it, it was the same. There's a lot of crying, there's a lot of mourning. Yes. And that is helpful. Sabina Baudet talking with The New Yorker's Burkhardt Bilger. Burke has just published the book Fatherland, a memoir of war, conscience, and family secrets. I'm David Remnick, and that's the New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado and Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, Avery Keatley, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. <laughs>